Declan Kelly, Managing Partner of MWI, the Irish arm of MediaWorks. And this week I'm joined by my colleagues, Rachel, Christian, Andrew, David. And we're going to be discussing five digital experiments that will transform your business in 2022. Look, it's obvious and no secret that marketeers face an increasingly competitive digital landscape. There's new platforms, there's emerging technologies. There's also the shifting behavior of audiences and customers. Uh, are we in lockdown? We had a lockdown. Are the restrictions on? And so on. So there's lots to juggle and lots to stay on top of. So in this masterclass, we're going to look at the key trends, tools, and innovations, and how you as a marketeer can stitch in smart experimentation. And that's going to help you transform your business in this year, 2022. So first up, we have David Norris, Performance Marketing Director. David, over to you. What are you going to talk about today? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to talk about, I feel like I'm, in, I'm an imposter, really. I'm, I'm going into sort of Paul Mallet's novel space of brand. But I do feel, I do feel like, um, from a paid perspective, brand is definitely something that people should be considering um, from a paid perspective. So I think the role of branding, we've, we've talked about it on numerous podcasts and, and masterclasses over, over the last couple of years. But I think it's never been more important, um, to be honest. And, and I think that one of the things that I often see from, from sort of a paid perspective is we know that cost per clicks are increasing. We know that there's great competition on the platforms. We know that there's more direct-to-consumer activity taking place. Those brands who traditionally weren't in the space are, are entering entering into the space. However, I do think that, that what we need to be thinking of is is – how how that traffic's performing, how sort of relevant um, we're seeing in terms of conversions from brand versus generics versus brand pluses, et cetera. So I know that, you know, and, and this is all, by the way, against the, the backdrop of a point we talked about last week, Cookie Mageddon. I have to get that in all the time because it's my favorite term at the moment. Um, you know, this 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 cookie-less future um, that, that Google's driving us or, or a lot of the providers are driving us towards. So I think now is a good time to be really testing your audiences and seeing sort of and analysing your traffic. And I know Rachel will, will, will advocate this and probably touch on bits of this later, but, you know, understanding what your traffic's doing, how it's performing, et cetera, where the conversion's coming from, because, you know, we see brand can perform, always performs typically so much stronger than any generic activity that you do. So I think now is the time to be thinking about how you can how you can actually leverage your brand or increase your brand. So I think for me, the first I want to give practical tips out. So I think the first place to start is really about sort of benchmarking your traffic. So understanding sort of which proportion is coming from branded terms, which is coming from brand plus terms, um, which is coming from just generic terms in terms of volume, and really look at that that search trend over time as well to see sort of. Is your brand on the increase? Is it on the decline? Uh, are you seeing particular peaks around particular periods or trends? You know, we work with uh, a florist and they're coming into their big season with things like Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, et cetera, about to take place. So that's a, a really interesting one that they typically see. So I would definitely be suggesting that you look at this sort of year on year 
But I would also put in year on year on year on year because last year isn't going to be the same as this year for all the reasons that you highlighted at the beginning, Declan. Are we in lockdown, not in lockdown? You know, so the periods aren't exactly the same. So I'd be definitely evaluating sort of 2019 levels in there as well, so including that. But I would also be looking for those sort of softer conversions and, and look at things like, you know, email sign-ups, um, follower counts, et cetera, and just seeing if you're seeing any fluctuations in there. So I think the thing I'd be advocating would be test on things like social platforms, you know, see whether Facebook's going to work for you, um, TikTok's going to work for you, LinkedIn's going to work for you, and run brand tests on there. And essentially, what I mean by a brand test is essentially reaching out to different audiences because of the, the audience targeting capabilities on those platforms and really be focusing on, on trying to, to drive your brand search volume higher. We still typically see that 90 to 94% of all online conversions involve search at some point. So, you know, it's not often a first customer touch point, but it's definitely going to play a part. So I think that one of the things I'd be advocating is absolutely consider how you you are going to run sort of social projects or display projects or, or programmatic activity that with the aim of seeing what it does to your brand traffic and hopefully what you'll see is that the more people who are targeted with the right message the right time the right place through the right platform are then going to go well i want to find out a bit more about that organization or ultimately become aware of your organization and then want to search about it later on. So that's where we talk about like brand uplift studies to see if, if again, benchmarking where your brand traffic was at and look to increase. Reason behind that, as I say, is really to make sure that you're able to get traffic as cheap as possible, um, but also the best converting traffic because we know that brand typically converts better than things like generic traffic because of this, uh, the limited competition that we see out there. Okay, very good, David. Um, and I think there's something to be said for that balance between, you know, people being aware and warmed up to your brand or service, that it'll pay off also over not just the short term, but the longer term as well. And if you get that balance right, and it's experimenting to find that right balance, it'll be a better outcome, you know, overall. 100%. And I think this is where, without straying into to Andy's space as well, but I think this is where you, you have to do things like test the platform, you know, test which audience, you know, does your audience work or are they engaged on a particular platform? I also think there's a there's another element of testing the creative around that. You know, so what what does the creative do? Does video typically drive higher brand or is it, you know, statics or is it carousels or is it, you know, even influencer or, or organic posting? But definitely be considering the role of brand within that because, you know, it's never going to be more important because, as I say, we are seeing increased competition. We are seeing companies start to bid aggressively on, on other brands. And I think that that's the other element is some people will say to me, well, we don't use paid because we're already number one in organic rankings for SEO. And the reality is that's great. But the only way to guarantee yourself to be top of Google's listed is actually on paid search because that's what comes up in the top spaces. So what we see typically is other brands will bid aggressively on it. So even use it from a defensive mechanism to see if you can use it, you know, to defend your proposition and make sure you're hoovering up the best traffic possible. 
Yeah, and I think uh, just to add to that, you know, having to think about your market position, if you're market leader, the challenger brands are coming for you. And, you know, we know it's increasingly competitive out there. So I think really interesting points there, David, uh, on that one. And most importantly, you've reminded me to uh, order flowers from my mum for <laughs> Valentine's Day, as we do over here. So thank you for that. Um, we're going to uh, go over now to Rachel McGuigan. Rachel's our Head of Insights and Innovation. And Rachel, you're going to talk about one of the most important data points in business, which is the uh, lifetime value. Thank you, Declan. So, yeah, I think it wouldn't be me if I didn't pick a data project. So I kind of recommend um, take undertaking a project that is going to explore the lifetime value of a customer. The reason behind this is because when you fully understand what a lifetime value of a customer looks like, it fuels your future marketing decisions, but also business decisions as well, because there's a lot of data that needs to go into this. Um, and it's not just important to know the lifetime of the value, the lifetime value of your customer, because while that gives you some insights, you have to lean on different uh, data sources to uh, kind of get a full picture of that. So we talk about kind of first party data and second party data to understand what that customer like might look like. But it helps you determine the behaviors, like the behaviors and the characteristics that go into what that um, almost persona looks like. What does a good lifetime value customer look like? What necessarily does a kind of single purchase customer look like or a single touchpoint customer look like? And again, we know that that's something that you can then utilize across lots of different marketing platforms. But I suppose being able to determine what that looks like for you allows your business to go and explore different avenues. So it's not just now you know what your lifetime value of a customer is, but you can look at how you tackle new customer acquisition. You can look at how you tackle retention as a business, um, the kind of time lag that goes between repurchasing rates and things like that. And also, you know, um, companies then take on projects that look at profitability and how much they can afford to spend now that we know what those customers look like. I think once you... Once you have got that decision in mind, once you've got who that persona is, you can obviously then think more strategically about what you're going to do about it. So are you going to try and encourage similar behaviors? Um, is that through the likes of audience lists and testing creative to get in front of similar audiences? Is it utilizing personalization on the site and where you should be cross-selling products and things like that? Or is it just making sure that you maximize or reduce what your CPA or ROAS is because now you know how much you can actually afford to spend to acquire those customers, how much money that makes you in the long term. I think the challenge with lifetime value and why maybe it isn't as explored as often, it isn't a metric that you get by default. It is something that it's different to every business. You're going to have to go and find it. So it kind of puts people off sometimes but also it does rely on bringing together multiple sources of data. And in bigger businesses, you, the marketing team or whoever you put in charge of that project might not necessarily hold all of the data sources in one place. So they're going to have to go, they're going to have to find it. It could all be in different forms. Um, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done at the start for this project to be able to go ahead. Um, and then I think you also need how consider how it's going to be analyzed so you know is it something as simple as you're going to use excel formulas pivot tables and that's going to get you to be able to spot some patterns or larger scale do you need to go into regression testing and classification with machine learning to understand 
actually what attributes are the most important for your customers. So there's a few challenges um, and a few things that I guess that need to be considered before that project takes place. If I was to recommend somewhere to start, um, I definitely think it's making sure that you've got end-to-end visibility of your website, pro- like of a process to become a customer. So from the first point, they engage with you or touch the website to the point where they officially either make a purchase or you know they complete a form and then someone has to go from your sales team. Can you have full visibility of that journey? Because that's really going to give you a lot of the key parts that play a part in lifetime value. Um, it's a bit difficult for it's a bit more difficult for lead gen because obviously the sale happens offline, but it's still entirely possible. So I also wouldn't rule it out. But obviously, if you're e-commerce, it's a bit more straightforward. Um, and then I would say similar to most experiments, and I know David touched on this before, but you always need to benchmark where you start because how are you ever going to truly know if you've made any progress if you don't know where you're starting from? So I would say always benchmark that. Um, and then I don't think you can move my redial at once because with lifetime value, you might want to look at the full lifetime value. You might want to look at increasing the first order value, uh, decreasing the time for them to come back to you. There's lots of different things you could look and you can't move them all at once. So start by picking individual metrics that you would want to move the dial slightly and then create the strategy around that. Give that time, you know, whether you're going to use digital to back that up or not. Give that time to run and then review. And then you can always pick a new ex- a new process to try or a new test to try for that metric. Or you can also move on to a different metric and try to turn that dial a bit because each little movement really does um, kind of increase it overall. They all play a part together. Um, and then I think really my last bit is about how it's going to be successful. And that's again, kind of capturing the right data at the start, you need that to actually start the analysis. And it's if you have to wait a few months for data to collect, the more you put it off, the longer it's going to take to ever be able to do that project. So think about your CRM system, your digital marketing platforms. Do you have a call center or do you have stores where you might want footfall data? Think about all of the different pots of data that might play a part and start working now to try and get it all together. Because if you're only going to end up having half of that picture of what a customer's journey is, you're probably going to risk making uninformed business decisions or, you know, have a skewed view of what your lifetime value looks like. So there's a few things that maybe are going to play a part here, but definitely start by getting your data all in one place because that will really help. Thanks, Rachel. Some really good advice and tips in there. I'm going to murder the George Orwell quote, which is all customers are equal, but some customers are more equal than others. And I think it's <laughs> trying to understand and know and how important that is to the business to know where those you know, high value customers are and how you, how you treat them. So really what I got from that is data is at the heart of it and putting manners on that data allows the business then to have confidence and that's how you unlock the good stuff. Is that fair yeah. enough? Yeah, good stuff. definitely. Easier said than done, says you that. <laughs> okay uh, thanks a million Rachel we're going to go over to Christian Serizola he sounds like a centre half signed from an Italian second division team but he is actually <laughs> our PR director over to you Christian 
I think that's the best intro I've ever had on one of these sessions. Thank you very much for that. Um, if you see me play football, you know I'd be far lower than second division Italian football. Um, so yeah, PR. Um, so I thought about suggesting a couple of things to try with with sort of um, your digital PR efforts uh, for, for, for 2022. But the more I thought about them, the more I realised I think they sort of almost came together as one thing. Um, and and the, the, the main theme of this, I think, is around content quality um, and relevance, which it sounds obvious, but but sort of um, hear me out for the next couple of minutes, and I'll explain why I think we need to pay particular attention this year to um, to, to the quality of content that you, you're putting out there. Um, I suppose, in, um, to, to, to give it a bit of context, in the digital PR team, I suppose we're, we're sort of media facing, probably for one of two reasons. One is um, to support that link building exercise, either towards category or to brand. Um, and, and generally, the best way to, to obviously generate those, those really impactful links is through high domain authority sites. Which sites carry high domain authority? Generally, they're media sites. And so you can see kind of why we're, we're in the business of kind of being media facing for, for SEO um, activity. And then also, on, I guess, in a more traditional PR sense, um, we'll we're, we're, we're be pursuing um, awareness building exercises in the digital space. And, and both of these obviously lean heavily on, on understanding what the media want. Um, but we started noticing something that was sort of a little bit, and, and, and it's, it's always always been there. Um, we, we noticed one or two things sort of pre-Christmas, and certainly um, the, the, the new year started with a bit of a bang. And so it's something I wanted to, to sort of try and focus on for, for the next couple of minutes, um, which means we, we've, we've all sort of really got to be on our game far more frequently with the media. So it, it, it's, it's, I don't want to get too negative, but it does come as a bit of a cautionary tale that I hope you'll... Uh, means you, you keep trying to push the boundaries, really, and, and, and instead not sort of shrinking in, into your shells when it comes to, to kind of um, relevant and, and interesting and, and, and timely content. Um, that, that quality in the media demands in, in, in terms of quality and timeliness and relevance, um, it's always been high. Um, and obviously knowing how to tell a good story that resonates then was, has always been paramount in, in, in the PR space. Um, but what I think we're starting to see, like I say, a little bit pre-Christmas, and certainly this side of Christmas, and I'll give you a, a really strong example of this, is more instances of media starting to call out kind of quite publicly poor practice. Um, and, and the example I, I sort of want to point towards was a couple of weeks ago was Ovo Energy, um, who made the front page of, of, I think, the Telegraph and the FT uh, one morning. Um, but that then set the tone for, for kind of, you know, radio and, and broadcast news channels as well for the rest of the day um, with their top tips piece on, on staying warm for winter. Um, so you might think, you know, a, an energy company offering advice on, on, on kind of how to stay warm for winter, not that bad. But then when you add the context to what's been going on around kind of energy and energy prices, um, those prices saw in a vast number of people genuinely concerned around um, you know, how they're going to be able to afford kind of these rocketing prices through the winter. Um, and, and so when you look at kind of the, those, um, you know, tips about wearing thicker socks and, and kind of hugging your pets in the evening, you could see how sort of, um, you know, tone deaf really, that that kind of felt like it was landing at, at that particular moment. Um, I, I think you, you kind of look at this and, and, and kind of, it's almost against this backdrop of this sort of increasing kind of cancel culture that, um, you know, mass media seem to be applying to brands as well as individuals. And, and it almost feels like at the moment they're on the lookout for um, sort of sloppy content or soft content to, to effectively punish 
as and when the time is right. And I think Ovo gave them that opportunity. Like I don't, I don't know when they produced that particular piece. It may well have been, you know, sat on their website for some time. Um, but certainly it gave media all the fuel they needed um, to, 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 to kind of really kind of publicly out them really in, in that in, in that fashion. And so that I think is is something that kind of was a, a if, if it wasn't a wake up call for, for 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 a long time. And hey, look, you know, we as as, as people who sort of sit and, and speak to media day in day out, we too have, have kind of faced criticism on, on getting things wrong sometimes. Um, but this this thing about kind of those, those that these guys sometimes now going quite public with with kind of where brands get it wrong is obviously you know pretty dangerous. Um, I, I, I think the second part of, of my advice and, and, and kind of this I think ties in with um, this this element of thinking about um, kind of the, the right types of content um, is to consider um, this this the idea of topical relevance or, or, or topical authority. Um, which Google is getting smarter at ranking, um, you know, keywords that, that, that appear um, on relevant sites. So, um, say for example, you're a I don't know gin brand or something. Google may offer a better ranking to a link on a site dedicated to drinks news um, and, and advice than it might do um, from a link that say about I don't know camping or sport or something like that. Um, so I, I, I think that is something over 2022 that we're going to see far more of that, that kind of. Um, Google is going to kind of really um, promote those types of, of, of links and keywords and activity that are on relevant sites. Um, that would, should also helpfully get you thinking about relevant content and timely content and useful content um, right at the very top as well. And, and sort of try and avoid those moments where, you, you know, you might be fearful that, that kind of you're going to face the wrath of of, of, of the media in, in the way that kind of the Telegraph or, or, or the FT sort of did um, with, with, with OVO. Um, my recommendations on, on sort of trying to tackle some of that, um, I, I think what we do, what we often do is, is we're, we're quite critical on ourselves, actually, and we sort of apply the, the sort of the so what question. If we're, if we're developing, um, you know, whether that be a, a, a news release or a piece of content or whatever it might be for for our clients is, is to ask ourselves, so what? what what's, what's the interesting thing here? What's the relevant thing? Um, and very often you can apply that to what's going on in society or culture or, or kind of developments within an industry. Um, so, so keep asking yourself that so what question because I think that that's a really good test sometimes of, of, of just making sure that you're on the ball with, with, with content that you're producing. Um, things we do as well, um, I, I like to try and do is run, run your content idea past people outside of of, of your team I think it's it's very very easy to um, get deep into our own world as, as, as marketers sometimes and, and forget almost what's going on outside the bubble um, and so I think if you, if you just kind of repeat what your idea might be to someone who doesn't sit in that bubble every day you'll get a very um, you, you get a very interesting very different answer I think and it comes back to that sort of so what question because they might just say so what um, and, and so, you know, ask yourself what you're adding to, to, to those conversations or, or, or to that content piece. Um, I'd maybe advise as well running a bit of an audit on a, any um, historic content, um, uh, you know, for, for yourselves and, and your brand or your business. Um, I, I think, you know, the pace of change in society, um, we, 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 we've seen that, that kind of develop very, very quickly. Um, it, it, it's interesting and, and, and you sort of tend to find it sometimes um, Maybe unfairly, I don't know, but um, kind of, you know, sports stars who are kind of coming through and, and, and kind of become these overnight successes 
suddenly get criticised for tweets they put out when they were sort of 13, 14 years old or something. Um, but I think we can we can learn lessons from things like that. Have an audit on your, your historic content. Um, what might have been acceptable kind of even just a few years ago might now be, be viewed very, very differently in a different context than the context that we're in currently. Um, so think hard about that quality and quantity. Um, if, if it, you know, it, it's, I, I, I don't sort of want to panic people that kind of um, any sign of, of content that isn't 100% bang on is, is suddenly going to end up on the front page of the Telegraph. But, um, you know, that there are um, that there has always been a, a slightly uneasy kind of relationship between sort of PR and journalist. And um, there, there is a hashtag on Twitter that kind of is, is sometimes can be an interesting read. And, and you know, look, Crumbs, we, 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 we learn from it as well, sort of that the hashtag PR fail. Um, it can be dominated by, by kind of bigger news items on occasions, but sometimes you do get um, quite a few journalists going and going, I've just been approached with this particular story or this particular piece of content, and it's miles away from where I need to be. And you see that quite a lot on that hashtag. So um, in, in terms of those recommendations, yeah, just to repeat those, apply the so what question, run things um, past people that don't sit within your bubble, Um and then maybe have a think about um, kind of some of that historic content to make sure it's still it's still relevant and it's still got context to to, to kind of things that are happening today. Thanks, Christian. Uh, I hope you didn't panic anyone. I did take that. You know, there's pitfalls out there, so you got to watch out for them. I think that aiming for the the quality piece uh, is 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 one of the biggest benefits. And uh, you used to have a thing, Christian. It was called the Git in the Pub. And maybe that's a bit like you're so what, which is what does the get in the pub think? You know, why yeah. should he care? And I think that's also good to step out of our, our bubble and talk to people. God, we, we yeah, completely. Um, it, it's it, you're right. The, the, the pub analogy is one we use often. It's like, and sometimes when we're talking to the team about how we're going to present the story, it's like, well, how would you tell this to your mates in the pub? Um, they might all be gits, Declan, but uh, there you go. <laughs> thank you, Christian. Uh, next, we are going to go to. Uh, Andy Blenkinsop is our creative director. And one of the areas that we've seen the biggest change is how we buy stuff online. We are swiping, we're clicking, we're reloading. Andy, you better bring us up to speed on what the latest is and how we can experiment in this area. So kind of going on from Christian's topic around kind of content, content creation. So actually what I would kind of encourage people to do is experiment with the concept of shoppable content. Right. So kind of what is shoppable content? So shoppable content is arguably a digital asset, such as a social media post, an image, a video, an ad, a lookbook, anything that a customer can click, any content a customer can click to make a purchase. So actually, you know, I think a lot of brands and, and, and companies and organizations understand the, the, the value in creating content, you know, in publishing relative content that's going to engage a consumer to build deeper relationships with kind of people who purchase your product or interest in your service. So there's a lot of content being created, right? And I, and I, I suppose, you know, and we know it can be timely. A lot of effort goes into the research, as Christian said, understand your audience, what does I want, bringing a data points to make sure it's going to add value to a kind of, to, to an end consumer, your target audience. But what I, I'm, again, it's this idea of what can you experiment with? And I would experiment with kind of, you know, challenging all of your content in a different way of, of making it shoppable. How can we put that content to work to drive a return that's going to add value to the business, right? So actually, you know, what, what we want people to do is to kind of find themselves in a platform, brand storytelling, given um, creating stories, case studies around a piece of content, telling that story, but driving action from it, making sure that you're getting a return as an organization by, you know, making a, a 
from content to cart. I've heard people say in the e-commerce world, but actually, as I was thinking and preparing this, it's actually it's a B2B organization. How can we, from content to conversion, you know, apply the same theory of how can we, you know, reduce the purchase journey and actually increase, improve conversion rate by creating valuable, helpful, meaningful content, and then actually deploy it in the platforms and channels where people are now, in my opinion, that, you know, comfortable shopping. You know, 43% of Gen Z, 49% of millennials have purchased products or services directly from social media platforms, right? A bit of a kind of carry on from what we spoke about last week of where, you know, Gen, younger generations are comfortable in Facebook making direct purchases, you know, shopping from an Instagram ad, as David saying, going out with branded content on Instagram, but activating it, really challenging yourself to think, actually, how am I going to drive a return from this content beyond engagement? Like get some pounds in the bank off the back of that. That's what I think we really we need to focus on. And so I think I wanted to kind of try and sum like why you know why should we do it? You know, yes, we're talking about kind of improving conversion rate, but for me, it's like how does it work? You know, what's it any different from creating an e-commerce store? driving a load of traffic to it and expecting them to transact. Like we want to create different ways to showcase our product. But ultimately, you know, the, the benefits of it are, in my opinion, is that you can shorten the customer journey. Therefore, you're reduce, reducing the sales funnel. You're creating less friction, less opportunity to, to kind of drop out of that purchase mindset and go elsewhere. So that's a, that's a real benefit. I think it, ultimately as well, if you think about this idea of brands kind of storytelling, curating valuable content, you're creating a, an improved customer experience around your brand and your product. You know, you're creating stuff of value, you're solving problems, and you're shifting people in that one piece of content from top of the funnel to bottom. You know, I mean, that's the dream, isn't it? You go from a blog content and you purchase, and there's a direct link to the product that you've got some fantastic lookbook stuff in there. Like, that's what we want to do. But I think what excited me as I was looking into it is, is how can, how can like, kind of, you know, B2B businesses activate that content in a similar way. How can we kind of look at driving conversions and inquiry and live chats around kind of useful, helpful content? And actually, you know, it, content can play a part in, in, in driving kind of real results. I think that it's really measurable. You know, Rachel, if you think about it, if we're creating a piece of content that can directly convert, then actually being able to obtain a conversion metric from that and report on a value of that piece of content that you've invested time in, that really helps kind of communicate the value of your content. You know, you know, as marketeers, we you know we invest in white papers, we invest in blog content after blog content because we know it has value. But actually then going to put a, a commercial value on that, having a return on that investment is really going to help, you know, when we start justifying why we create that piece of content. And I think actually what that then does get us in that mindset of thinking about the purpose of the content before we even create it. You know, then you can start, is, is it worth the investment of time to create this piece of content based on how much money it's going to generate at the bottom? So for me, it's this idea of actually, you know, content used to be out there to engage, but because of the way these channels, social channels are working, we're continuing to work and we can really see a return from it. Um, I think in terms of kind of ideas of where you can go, with, I think literally just, you know, looking at your blog posts, you might have published 10 blog posts recently, right? Is there a way to activate that? And, and make and make that shoppable content. You know, is there a way to kind of you know over the next three months change the mindset, make sure everything that you do create is driving action, is, is kind of encouraging consumers to purchase, to inquire, and then measure it, measure the performance of the content you created over the last three months, the content you're going to create in three months going forward, and is it having a direct impact on you know the performance 
in terms of baskets, checkouts, inquiries, etc. I think shoppable video, shoppable video is really, really exciting. I think, you know, being able to kind of storytell, communicate brand message, demonstrate how products are being used. Um, you know, if you're a software, if you're a SaaS platform, you know, take people through the platform, understand the value, have a call to action at the end of it. You know, YouTube's channel is very shoppable. You, know, you can click links and you can purchase directly from it. Then you go into the likes of Instagram and social, you know, Facebook, you can literally buy in platform. Instagram, you can buy in platform. So you turn these things on, activate them. And you've got a really, really engaged audience there. You create these posts, put them to work, I think. So in summary, because I ranted a little bit there, Declan, um, <laughs> why, ex why experiment with it? You know, because I think, you know, actually, I think, it, it, it is without a doubt, it can, it can increase conversion rate and it can kind of, provide you a return um, on your kind of investment in creating that. I think that actually it's an opportunity to build brand relationships with your audience, uh, you know, create loyalty, advocacy. Um, you know, you could, you, you know, a lot of that content you create out on these channels are shareable. You know, it's a, it's a way to kind of, I suppose, grow your network and grow your audience if your content is engaging. So I think there's, there's many, many positives from it. And I think we should all kind of think about it. Um, moving forward and, and start implementing it in all of the content we create. Yeah, it's a real exciting area. And I think for me, it distills down into anything that can remove the friction, make things easier to buy. Remember, you're showcasing these products in an environment that shows them at their best. And we're all tempted. <laughs> it's popping up. I think I will. I will buy. And then just with, with you know, the way the platforms are set up, you know, it's autofill. Your details are nearly in there. Your credit card is on the side. Uh, two taps of the phone. So I think this is my favorite kind of experimenting. It's the experimenting that will drive sales and, and give real valuable learnings uh, to the business. Okay, thank you, Andy. I suppose um, we'll, we'll move on now. Uh, some people might consider this a hospital pass, but in the spirit of this masterclass and experimenting, uh, Paul Mallet uh, couldn't attend because he's sick, but I'm going to do his piece. So I hope you... Uh, Give me the right kind of levels of forgiveness on this one. So the point I'm going to talk about here is, um, is putting customer experience at the heart of your website experience. So having that top class customer experience on your website, it's relevant to all businesses, but really it's the foundation to digital success. So on web experience, we know that, you know, last year Google launched their additional measures to its algorithm to call web vitals. So it meant that web pages that are passing their measures rank above content with lower performance. So Google essentially wants to reward websites that are offering that higher quality user experience and it'll de-rank websites that are offering poor UX or poor user experience. So if we remember Core Web Vitals is about loading speed, it's about how fast before you can respond on that website and is your content jumping around on the page. That sat on top of their existing measures, which were mobile friendliness, is your site built for mobile, the HTT PS, I always check if I have the right number of T's in that. So it's HTTPS, which is about um, browsing security and your SSL certificates. And then just generally being safe for browsing, reducing fraud and protecting user privacy. We see a huge amount of business that are failing these basic measures. Um, and that has a cumulative effect on, on business performance. So you can use tools. They're out there. If anyone doesn't have them or wants them, uh, just you know, ask us. We'll send them on. These are Google's own tools. And they'll help you get your scores in that area. So here's what you need to do. Improve your customer experience on the website by focusing on the measures that matter to Google. So 
make pro progress on your homepage, your service page, your product page, the conversion event. If your site adheres to those Google page signal measures, you're set up for success. But look, one thing, if you really want to prioritize one thing, it is your website loading speed as a priority. There's a Deloitte study, and it's a really good name, considering it's Deloitte, and it was milliseconds make millions. And what they saw, if you can improve your mobile speed, uh, load, loading speed, that will drive positive change across all verticals. So your page view, your conversion rates, your average order value. And once you nail that, more specifically, you can get into the website customer experience. This really should be your next quarter's priority. So here's what you do now. And we heard this coming from a lot of our panelists, which is important of measuring and benchmarking. So let's take that snapshot now of how your customer is behaving on your website. Dive into the analytics, benchmark those key measurements of your user activity. So then you're going to measure your performance, your website performance against the Google page signals. And you're going to work with your technical SEO or your web developers to optimize against those metrics. Then you're sitting back and you are watching for this experiment, how did that improve our key kind of business metrics? Um, and ultimately, if we're getting these things right, that's positive to your bottom line. So let's look at how users are behaving on the website. Has your search visibility increased? Are more visitors finding out about your products and your services? Are they accessing the website quicker and consuming more content? And ultimately, are more users uh, converting to customers? Uh, Andy, if you hadn't to, to hop in there, considering uh, that uh, this hospital pass was given to me at, uh, at about quarter to 10. Yeah, that was good. I've just got it 11 minutes past 12, but it's okay, Declan, because I completely agree with everything that you've just said. And I know that kind of... Yeah, Paul, I'll let me hear, can't you? Um, but I think it's, it is it is really, really, really important. You know, we spent a lot of time back in the last year talking about the importance of improving your overall experience, right? And it is going to happen. And a lot of it was, you know, protect your SEO visibility, protect your SEO visibility. And that was a really key thing that drove drove this metric to be put at the forefront of everybody's agenda, let's say, back in the last year. But without a doubt, you will see a positive impact off the back of it. I think there's nobody on the call, panelists or attendees, that can't say that they've, you know, they've been frustrated by the performance of a website, became impatient and left. Right, and that is down. As you say, it's, it's, it's we call we we think it's a very simple thing in such as site speed, but you know, there's different. You know, some websites need a lot more attention than others. Let's say, you know, there can be some. There can be a few things that could be having a catastrophic impact on on your load time, and actually just focusing on those um, and putting them at the front of your kind of list of priorities. Never mind introducing new functionality. Never mind building out and and, and making your website better, adding new things. Let's make what we have. In, in its current state, perform the best that it possibly can, and you will see you will see change. You know, what was that? Mill milliseconds mean millions. Did you say there? That's right. Milliseconds make millions. I love that. But it, but it, yeah. it is it is true. You know, taking a page speed from three to two seconds can make all the difference. And I think as well, if you think about the mindset of a customer, I'm talking about trying to take people directly from kind of one part of your website to be to hit your basket, taking somebody from Facebook, who you know, which is an app that's cashed on you on your website that they invest millions and millions of pounds and make sure that it's always online, it's always responsive, it's fast, it loads content within a second. We need to, you know, we strive to kind of continue that experience on sites and people don't then just get frustrated. You know, look at what 
you know, David will kind of back us up, you know, Google's shopping feed, you know, it was a way to bring product directly into the feed, directly into Google search engines, find it instantly, validate it with reviews, click straight through to the product. We need to continue that kind of the pace that Google expects. And the whole reason why Google have put this at the forefront is, is for that reason, because they want to then, they, they don't want you to kind of keep clicking on that shopping ad, get really frustrated because it keeps sending you to rubbish websites, you can't transact. So it's all, you know, Google is just trying to kind of encourage that we all adhere to the things that, 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 they, that they expect us to create frictionless experiences, make it really easy to buy because they make loads of money off if you do. You know, yeah, so it's, think, kind of, it's just the way that it works. I think, I, think, I think you're absolutely right to call out Google shopping there, to be honest, with, uh, Andy, because I think from my, from my perspective, there's never a better example where who would have thought that in a paid advertising space, you're actually, yes, payments like a big piece of that, but actually quality is massive in terms yeah. of your ranking and, and how they rate your data. And actually the easiest way to move your shopping activity is to actually improve the data quality that you're putting in. And the reason behind that is, is because Google wants to make sure that you've got the best experience possible, i.e., you know, the, the customer goes on, wants to find a product that is then driven to the ad that is the best position to deal with that request. And I think that, you know, if you take that model, that was all around the big Google updates that we saw last year, et cetera. And I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. Is there, you know, essentially using massive amounts of data that are out there um, to ensure that they drive the best customer experience possible. And again, think about it from their business model. The reality is, if they're not providing you a good search experience, you can guarantee someone else will provide you a good search experience. Um, and I think that from my perspective, that's an enormous piece that can't be overlooked. So, yeah. yeah I'm Sorry, Declan, I'm going to go again. Um, but I had a really interesting chat yesterday with James Rennick, one of our optimization strategists, and he was talking about this idea of like relevance. You know, what does an audience expect when they land on the page on your website, right? If you know, think about what they're searching for, then think about what they expect when they land. And actually, then you've got to think about, right, okay, well, they expect it to load really, really quickly. They expect the content to be really relevant based on the search term they've entered. And actually, if they do want to convert, they probably expect that to be there as well. And what, you know, if... if the the effort you put into creating that you know optimum experience on page starts from where they came, the expectation of when they land, and then we've got to meet that demand because actually that's what's going to make them engage. That's what's going to make them consume. It's going to stop them from bouncing. And as David said, the more that customers are leaving the website and bouncing, our quality score is going to reduce from a Google perspective. It's going to impact our paid performance. So everything stems down to the to the quality and the performance of your website where we're going to drive all of this traffic. So I think it's a great one to, to, to think about, Declan. I think it's it's something that we should be implementing and acting upon. But as you as you said, the most important part is benchmark it now, measure the after, and, and there's, there's a great experiment to show you how investing in your infrastructure, investing in your content, looking at your website can drive a better return. Okay, well, look, we hope that we've inspired you guys to experiment and we want to actually hear, come back to us, join this panel, six months, 12 months, tell us about that experiment, what worked, what didn't. I'd like to thank all my colleagues on the panel today. I thought it was a super interesting conversation. Um, I'm going to leave you with this quote and um, just remember, there's no such thing as a failed experiment, only experiments with unexpected outcomes. Go experiment, folks. Thank you very much. Hey, 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 hey,